Who here likes In-N-Out Burger? I'm just curious. Who, okay, all right. So I might get booed in just a second here, but that's okay. Uh, who's just disappointed because they keep promising that they're going to come here and then they never do? My brother who is visiting from Denver, they just opened one in Denver and there's like hour-long waits, multiple hour-long waits all the time in Denver. So yeah, thanks Bailey for that look. Yeah, that is like craziness, right? So one of my favorite things to do is actually take people to In-N-Out Burger, but not because I like In-N-Out Burger. So growing up in Colorado, I had friends that were constantly going back to California and then come for summer break or whatever, and then they'd come back to classroom and they would talk up in and out burger. Oh man, to, to taste the heaven of in and out burger. It was like a party in your mouth, right? I mean, they would just, these kids would talk up and their fries, their fries were the best. And so I couldn't wait to finally go to In-N-Out Burger. And I ordered my In-N-Out Burger and I took one bite. That was an average hamburger. But the fries, the fries were so good, right? So I took a bite, I took a fry, and I, I took a bite. And I like the way my nephew describes it. I've never tasted fresh and stale at the same time. <laughs> but that's an In-N-Out Burger fry, right, Bailey? Am, am I right? I don't know how they do it, but it is, it's definitely fresh, and yet it kind of, I just, I don't really care for it, and I know I, I'm in the minority here, but, uh, so one of my favorite things to do is to take people to In-N-Out Burger, because not once have I ever taken someone to In-N-Out Burger, and they were overjoyed with their, with their first taste. Every time I've taken someone to In-N-Out Burger, you know, they've, they've heard it. Everybody in America has heard how great In-N-Out Burger is. And so it's been so pumped up in everybody's mind. And every time I take someone there, they're excited. And then they take their first bite. And I don't know why, but it makes me so happy when I see the sheer look of disappointment. <laughs> I mean, it's like this smile that goes into like a, well, that's just a hamburger. You're right, it is just a hamburger. How about the fries? Oh, they're kind of soggy. Yeah. So I don't know why, but, but there's this big, you know, it, it like, everyone builds it up. All these people that are nostalgic for California builds up In-N-Out Burger only to let you down. Now, Jude isn't quite like me. We've been dealing with the, this is like an empty promise, right? That just leaves you dissatisfied. Jude today is going to address other people that make empty promises. But unlike those people at In-N-Out Burger, it's not a harmless empty promise. It's not an empty promise built on the nostalgia of Californians. It's an empty promise that leads to death and destruction. And he doesn't enjoy watching the look of disappointment. Instead, he gives a stern warning. So open with me, if you will, to Jude. Uh-oh, my kids were playing with my Bible and lost my space there. It's all right. Jude is all the way at the end of your Bible. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. You can just backpedal just a little bit. It's easy to miss because it's really short. It's a short letter. Jude is writing, and it's a powerful letter. So last week we learned that he wanted to write to encourage them in their faith. He wanted to write about this mutual salvation that we have, but he had to change course Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he had to write because there were these people that crept in unnoticed. 
meaning that they were sneaking into the church. They looked like Christian. They talked like Christian. They used Christianese. And yet, they were only there to divide the church. They were only there to destroy the church. And even to this day, there are still people that are creeping into the church. Now, some of them literally walk in. Others use different platforms, podcasts, social media. But they're trying to infiltrate the church. And their goal is to destroy the church. So today, Jude is going to give us a description of them and show us that they have, they are full of empty promises. Let's go ahead and we'll read through starting in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the, of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in, in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams to file the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel, Michael, contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you! But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desire. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Quite the description of those who are sneaking into the church. So let's go ahead and dive in. Now I want to remind you, and what he's going to remind us of is something that they already knew, right? Something that they've already studied. And so he's going to dig into Old Testament scripture here. And he's going to use some examples from the Old Testament. These are stories that they were familiar with, stories that they knew, studies that they, stories that they grew up studying, much like our children in children's church know these stories. So he's going to remind you, although you once fully knew that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And this is a reference to the book of Numbers, essentially. And if you're not familiar with the book of Numbers, a lot of people like to skip the book of Numbers because they hear Numbers, and it starts with a census and ends with a census, and they think, that's boring. The reason why it starts with a census and ends with a census is it's a tell of two generations. And it's really important. It's actually a fairly exciting book if you can get past the two census. The tell of the two census goes like this. 
There's one generation that grew up in Egypt. They watched God free them from Egypt. They, they witnessed the miraculous plagues that God used to free them from Egypt. They witnessed as the Red Sea parted and, and they walked through on dry land. And they watched as the sea collapsed back on Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. They saw the cloud leading them by day and the fire by night. They witnessed the manna that God used to feed them. They even, at the mount of Sa- Ma- at the foot of Mount Sinai, watched as the thunder and lightning were booming and God was appearing and they were afraid of God because of what He was doing at Mount Sinai. They told Moses, don't let Him talk to us. He's too, he's too scary. You'll be the mediator between God and us. We're too afraid. So they watched what God had done. They were witnesses to His miracles. And yet, when they were ready to go into the promised land, what do they say? Why has God brought us here just so we can die? Throughout their time, they grumble against God. And throughout their time, they say stuff like, were there not enough graves in Egypt that God brought us through the desert? That's the first generation. The second generation didn't witness all of the miracles. And yet, when it was time to enter the promised land, they knew God would deliver them. And what is the lesson to learn from the book of Numbers? It's not that you need God to prove himself to you. It's that you need to choose God. You can choose to believe God, or you can choose No matter how many signs show up, no matter how God is working in your life, if you choose to ignore him, you can find a way to ignore him. Too often we run into people that ask, how is God in my life? How, what has God done for me lately? What is he doing for me? And the basis of that question always starts with a self-centered mode. And it is completely ignoring what God has done in your life. It is completely ignoring all of the miracles God has done from the beginning of creation until now. Including the miracle of taking a dirty, rotten sinner like yourself and making him pure and righteous, justified, holy, Going back to last week, that's one of the reasons why we need to write and encourage each other about our common salvation. Because when we forget about our common salvation, we forget about what God has done for us. When we forget about the person that we were compared to the person that God has made us become. We forget about God's miracles in our life. although you fully, once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. They saw the miracles. They witnessed them firsthand. And yet, 
they still refuse to believe. Rejection of the gospel is not out of confusion, but out of rebellion. When you reject God, it's not confusion, it's rebellion. Continuing on. And the angels did not stay within their own positions of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So, the next example he gives is the is the angels who were in rebellion. We know that when Satan rebelled against God, there were, there were angels that rebelled with him. And that's the reference here. And the, the main point that we need to get is that what, what was their rebellion? They did not stay within their position of authority. So God gave them some authority. But they didn't stay there. What did they do? They left their proper dwelling. And so what, what's the, the rebellion here? It's that they wanted to become God themselves. They no longer wanted God's authority over their life. They wanted to have their own authority. And so what does he do? He keeps them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the, the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desires. So what's going on here is Sodom and Gomorrah also rebelled. And what was their rebellion like? So we've got rebellion of disbelief, we've got rebellion of I want to be my own authority, and then we've got the rebellion of following your own sinful desires. Letting your desires become your God. That is Sodom and Gomorrah's rebellion. Now, it came in the form of sexual immorality, and this term here, unnatural desire, means that God designed sex. And he designed sex for a specific purpose. What Sodom and Gomorrah's rebellion and sin was, was that they were casting away the purpose of sex for their own sinful desires. They were letting their own sinful desires begin to control them. And they were no longer using physical intimacy in the way God intended God created physical intimacy. He created male and female. And then he created physical intimacy. He created sex for a specific purpose. One, well, a couple purposes I'll say. One is to procreate. To create more humans. Two was to bond a man and a wife in marriage. We know marriage can be tough. Committing to someone for the rest of your life is difficult. Physical intimacy helps create that bond. And so it is a, a tool God uses to bond a man and a wife. What the people of Sodom and Gomorrah started doing was using sex in other ways. Any way outside of God's design is sexual immorality following after unnatural desire. Now what's important for this is that we all have we all have some kind of sexual deviation. We all have some kind of temptation that wants to draw us away from God's natural design. It may not be same-sex attraction. That's the one a lot of American Christians like to point out. Whatever it is, Whatever sexual dysfunction that draws you, you need to come to a place where you are going to submit that to God. I have a very good friend. He's got a ministry called Calibrate Ministries. If you want to check it out online, I highly recommend it. 
Uh, he knew from a young age that he was attracted to other men. And he will tell you it was not a choice. It was an attraction that he felt was ingrained in him. It was not a choice. Later on, he showed up to a youth group and he wanted to talk to this youth pastor about this because he didn't know, he was wrestling with it. And that just so happened that night that the youth pastor said, I hate gay people. I wish God would wipe them out. And he said, see you later, church. And he left the church that day. It is important for us to watch how we speak about other people. And we need to make sure we speak with love. He left. And he fully embraced his same-sex attraction. He fully embraced this unnatural desire. And he lived this life. And it started to eat him away. He came to the point where he was going to kill himself. It just so happened that around the same time, God introduced him to some other Christians. And these Christians showed him love. And he decided instead of committing suicide, he would give his life to Christ. But he didn't know what to do with this attraction that he had. So he began to do what he called pray away the gay. He just prayed that God would take this away from him. And what he noticed was it never happened. And he can tell you story after story of, of young men who wanted to pray away the gay that just thought if they could only pray, if they just prayed hard enough, God would take this desire from them. And he can tell you heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story of that desire not being taken away. What he discovered was it's not pray away the gay. It's submit my desire to God. You see, with the pray away the gay philosophy, it's I want this, but God, take this want away from me. With, with submitting that desire, it was God, Whatever it is, I'm laying it down at your feet. It doesn't matter if I want this or not. I am going to submit every part of my life, my sexuality, my thought life, every single part, I am going to live in obedience to you. And what happened as he started to live out that obedience is that God began to change his heart. Began to transform him. Today, he is happily married, and he has a child, and he has a ministry reaching out to other people that struggle with same-sex attraction. But it all started with first knowing that God loves him, and secondly, submitting any unnatural desire to God, saying, God, I'm going to obey you no matter what. Now, you and I might not struggle. Some of us might struggle with same-sex attraction. Some of us don't struggle with same-sex attraction. But we all have some kind of sexual, deviant behavior that pulls at us. It might be pornography. It might be lust. You might want several different partners. 
Whatever it is, you need to submit it to God. And it will never go away until you say, God, I am submitting my life to you in obedience. And when you do that, God begins to change you. So these people are just like, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Now, all three of these examples, the unbelieving that, that exodus out of Egypt, the angels that rebelled against God's authority, and these who are letting their desires become their gods, all three of them serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's the point he's going to make. That's the point Jesus, or sorry, not Jesus, Jude is reminding us of, is that rebellion against God, whether it's a rebellion of disbelief, whether it's a rebellion of wanting to be our own God, or whether it's a rebellion of letting our desires control us, all of them end up undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. These three are examples for us. Yet in a like manner, these people also... So now he's going to connect these examples from the Old Testament with what these who are sneaking in are doing. Yet in a like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So this, this term, relying on their dreams... What they were doing was they were saying they had a new special revelation from God. So they would take Scripture, they would take the Old Testament, and they would take New Testament writings that the apostles were writing at the time. Not The entire New Testament had been filled at that time, but, but the new writings. And they would say, hey, God just gave me a special revelation, and I need to let you guys know. And so what Jude is saying here is that they're relying on these special revelations, don't trust them. There's one authority that we submit our lives to, and that is Scripture. That's our spiritual authority there. If someone comes to you and says, God gave me a special revelation about you, some red flags better start going up. Because the revelation we submit to is scripture. Yet in a like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, that's going back to that sexual immorality, reject authority, they reject the authority of scripture, and they want to use their dreams as an excuse for the defilement of the flesh, and blaspheme the glorious ones. This term glorious ones is really a reference to angels, and in, in that time, angels were thought of as the protector of scripture. And so what Jude is getting at here is that they are slandering angels, that they are slandering, they're so caught up in their own rejection of God's authority that they're even going to slander the messenger. They're going to talk trash about the ones who are bringing the message. That's the point he's getting across. But when the archangel Michael, now he's going to give us an example of this, but when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, how many of our good Awana kids remember that piece of scripture? None? No? Okay, good. That was a trick question. This is actually, Judah is drawing from the assumption of Moses. The assumption of Moses is not thought to be as inspired. It was a, a really popular book around the time that Jude was writing. He's going to draw from another uh, source called the Book of Enoch as well later on. It's important that we talk about this for a second, because this brings about some debate. Now, this is in scripture. So does that mean that Jude is giving the thumbs up 
on the assumption of Moses? Does this mean that there were certain parts of the assumption of Moses that were inspired? I don't think either one of those are the case. And I don't think that Jude thought the book of Enoch was inspired either. What he's doing here is much like what Paul did when he quoted the Greek philosophers. He's using something that was well known at that time for an argument. So that's all he's doing is he's taking a well-known piece of literature and he's going to use it as an argument and as an example to make a point. That's what he's doing here. So what's the point that he's trying to make then? Well, in the well-known book, The Assumption of Moses, uh, the archangel Michael and, and Satan start, start to gain an argument about what to do with Moses' body. Now, what happens? The archangel doesn't sit there and argue with the devil, but instead, what does he do? He says, the Lord rebuke you. So what does, say, so what does archangel Michael do? He doesn't, he doesn't dabble and argue with forces of darkness. Instead, he turns his mind, he turns his heart towards God. And that's the point that Jude is making. I think this is a great verse when you think about spiritual warfare. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we don't dabble, we don't argue with forces of darkness. We turn towards Christ. Christ has already had the victory. We don't need to argue. We don't need to dabble with them. We don't need to squabble. We turn towards God. So that's what's going on here, is that, that he's using that as an example, that even Archangel Michael wasn't going to talk about something that he didn't quite understand. He wasn't going to dabble or squabble with the devil. But what do these people do? But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. So they slander, they talk trash about all these things that they don't understand. They don't understand what's going on, but they're still going to talk trash about it anyways. It reminds me of uh, this story my grandparents used to, used to tell uh, about one of my older brothers. When my youngest sister was born, we, my mom sent us out to Kansas uh, just to, you know, be able to take care of my youngest sister. Well, my twin and I and my older brother were out in Kansas and they could take care of us. So anyways, the two weeks come up and my grandparents decide to take us back to Colorado and my older brother gets in the car and he starts talking to them, and he looks around and he says, where are you taking us? And my grandpa says, oh, we're going to take you home. And he goes, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, we're taking you home. He says, well, if you are, you're going the wrong way. My older brother was five at the time. <laughs> just, just a little clarification. I thought that, that might be an important detail. Yeah, so he's five years old. He's never even driven. He has no clue what Kansas is. My kids still wonder if we're leaving Arizona whenever we leave Flagstaff. You know, like kids just don't quite get geography yet, especially at that age. And so here is my older brother who's five years old. He thinks he understands. He thinks he knows geography. He probably didn't even know that there was a difference between Kansas and Colorado. He thinks he understands, but he has no clue. So I would, if I were comparing him to those who have snuck in, I would say that you could take him, you can make him then go on to talk trash about my grandparents. You idiots! You don't even know where you're going! Man, I can't believe what moron my grandparents are! They're taking me home, at least that's what they say they're doing. But they're probably gonna take us to Alaska. That's what my, that's what these guys are doing. They have no clue what they're talking about. 
absolutely no clue, and yet they're going to talk trash anyways. That's what these guys are doing. That's the example of uh, the Archangel Michael. That's what they're doing. So they blaspheme what they do not understand, and they are destroyed by, by all that they, lie, that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And so the point he's getting across again here is that they just follow their instincts. They, they, they have let their desires become their God. Their desires are what's going to control them. And we hear this today. We hear this in our culture often. Follow your dreams. Whatever your heart desires, go for it. It's bad advice. It just doesn't always pan out well. So then he goes on to, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Cord's rebellion. This, each one of these references has a lot of meaning to it. The, the way of Cain is uh, a reference back to Cain. And we have to understand that there were two paths that you could walk in. There was Abel's path, who wanted to please God. Abel's path was, I'm going to submit my life to God. I'm going to live my life the way God wants me to. And there was Cain's path. Cain said, God... Forget you, man. I'm going to do things my way. And what does God say? God says, okay, if you want to do things your way, you can go do things your way. But here's the deal. Is you're going to end up lonely? A vagabond? Who has no joy? And you will wander the earth until you die. It is a way of destruction. And so these people have gone the way of Cain. They've said, forget you, God. I don't want to submit to your authority. I want to do things my way. And the image here is okay. You will end up lonely until the day you die. The idea of Balaam's error is that Balaam was a poor prophet. Prophet? A poor prophet? Prophet? He, he was... Uh, uh, for hire prophet, so you could hire him out to make a prophecy, and uh, he was hired out by some kings that were going up against Israel to put a curse on Israel, and a donkey showed up and said to, well, no, sorry, he was riding on a donkey, the angel of the Lord showed up, and the donkey stops, and Balaam gets mad and finally hits the donkey, and the donkey turns around and talks to him. And the idea is, a donkey can understand it, why can't you? So that's Balaam's error. And then there's the Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion is also found in the book of Numbers. And it's just a simple, uh, as they're wandering the desert because of the unbelief, they're going to wander there for a while. And Korah starts up rebellion against God. Moses, or against, yeah, against God. But they're going to attack Moses as God's messenger. And eventually the rebellion will grow. And what eventually ends up happening is the ground opens up swallows the rebellion, and then closes back up. I told you, the book of Numbers can be pretty exciting. That's what's happened. And the whole point of that is that God takes rebellion seriously. God takes rebellion seriously because rebellion against God leads to death and destruction. And not just for the person in rebellion. Because we all have some little sin that we think is cute. We all have some little sin that we want to hold on to. We all have some sin that we don't want to hand over to God. And each one of those sins ends up in death and destruction. And not just for us. The other day someone asked me, why does God take sin so seriously? I said, well, 
let's just pretend for a second that I had an affair. You know, it might start off with something really innocent. Just, just a little innocent flirtation with some other girl. And I enjoyed it. It made my heart flutter like I hadn't fluttered in a while. And I held on to that little sin. That, this innocent sin, that's, it's not hurting anybody. We just had this innocent flirtation. But then I started thinking about this woman more. She started thinking about me. And eventually, that sin grew to an affair. How would that affect the church? How would that affect my children? All of a sudden, there's a divorce. The senior pastor goes through a divorce because of an affair. Not only does it hurt this church's ability to share the gospel, but it impacts my family. Who knows, maybe my kids don't want anything to do with God. And then what? how do they raise their children without a gospel? Our sin never impacts just us. It always impacts all of those around us. It hurts the people around us. And it makes it impossible for our community to thrive. It makes it impossible as individuals to thrive, for marriages and families to thrive, and as a community to thrive. That's why God hates sin so much. Because sin kills. Sin impacts way more than you could ever understand, than I could ever understand. So that's why God hates sin. So we've got Korah's and then Korah's rebellion, and then he's going to switch to five different word pictures. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. So that's a picture. If you're, if you're a sailor and you're out in your boat, you want to avoid a reef, because what will a reef do? It will destroy your boat. So he's saying that these guys are hidden reefs. You're not going to see them, but they're going to destroy you. So they're hidden, they are hidden reefs. Uh, they are waterless clouds. Monday we experienced waterless clouds. It was so hot and you saw the thunderstorms building. You're like, yes, we're going to get some relief. And then they blew on by. Oh no, my house is going to stay 100 degrees all night, right? So, so, but for them it was even more because we, they lived in an agrarian society. So without water, you had no food and you would starve. So these waterless clouds meant death. So their waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Once again, if we... I have a cherry tree that produced cherries one time in 20 years. Every, every summer I get excited because I see the, the flowers budding. I'm like, yes, cherries again. And then we get a freeze and I'm like, no, no cherries. Twice dead and uprooted. And what he's getting at here is, for, once again, for an agrarian society, a fruitless tree meant death. You weren't going to survive if your trees didn't produce. Wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. What he's getting at here is this wild, these wild waves are noisy. They come in with lots of noise. They come in bragging and boasting. But when they retreat, what are you left with? Stinky foam. And that's their shame. When they come in, they come in strong. They come in with loud words, but what are we left with? We're left with a stink. Wandering stars for whom the, gl the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
And so the wandering stars, really, it should be shooting stars. Why is it so exciting to see a shooting star with someone else at the exact same time? Because it's rare, right? How many times have you pointed out a shooting star to someone? Well, they, how many times have you pointed out a shooting star and they actually saw it? That's the point he's getting at, is that they're there for a second and gone the next. They're like that. And in all of these cases, there is utter darkness being reserved for them. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds, of all ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So once again, he's grabbing from a well-known book, not necessarily scripture, but from a well-known book, and he's going to quote it to make a point. Did anybody notice how many times I said ungodly there? There's a point to that. The point is, you can't be neutral when it comes to God. Some people like to claim that they're neutral. You're either submitting to God and growing in the grace that he has lavished upon you, or you are in rebellion against God, and you are considered ungodly. So, But the whole point of this quote is that God wins. In the end, God is victorious. These people are trying to come in and infiltrate the church, trying to create destruction, but in the end, God wins. It is important for us to hold on to that. And then he gives one final description. These are grumblers, malcontent, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This term grumbler means fault finder. The term malcontent means that they blame others. So they're constantly looking for something wrong and constantly looking how it's other people's faults. There are a lot of people that come in to visit our church and I can almost tell right away if they are going to leave our church or not. And I can tell by how they represent the last church they were at. Do you come in trash-talking the last church you were at? Do you come in saying that church knows nothing, that pastor's an idiot, and the previous church before that too? They're finding fault. And I, and I know when someone comes in and does that, that's only a matter of time until they tell me how an idiot I am, how idiotic I am, how an idiot. I was not, yeah, exactly. I just proved their point, right? I know it's just a matter of time. And what they always do, instead of looking at what they have done wrong, it's always someone else. And I want to say, you know, if you've been to five churches in the last year and every single one of them wrong was wrong, maybe you need to look at the common denominator there. But beyond that, I want to make one other point, is that God loves the church. God loves the local church. And if you left on bad terms, please don't go trashing the church. God loves that church. And he might have given you a new assignment, but he still loves that church, and he wants to see that church thrive. By talking trash about a church, you're talking trash about something God loves. So don't go bad-mouthing churches. So they're, they're fault-finders. They blame others. And they're going to follow their sinful desires. Once again, we see this idea that they are following, their, they're letting their desires control them. They're loud mouth boasters, 
showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so they come in, and they know how to work a crowd. They know how to ga gather up all the grumblers, because grumblers like to find other grumblers. And they like to gather up all their grumblers and have a lot of power within their grumbling. And then they like to tra talk trash against those that they know who to talk trash to. And they like to sweet talk those that they know they can sweet talk. And what they want to do is they want to divide and conquer the church. That's their idea. And they make a lot of promises. The trees. You have a promise with the trees. Waterless, waterless cloud. It's making a promise, right? You see that cloud and you know that the rain is coming and there's going to be this refreshment. In the end, it's death and destruction. There are people that will tell you they have a special revelation that want to twist Scripture, that want you to follow them. And they are willing to say whatever you want to hear so that you'll follow them. You want to do something? They'll tell you that's okay. Come join me. Their promises are full of death and destruction promise of Jesus Christ and submitting your life to him is life. Which promise will you follow? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We know that there is an enemy out there that wants us to believe that, that there is no judgment coming. That, that we can just follow whatever desire we want to and we'll be perfectly fine. But we also recognize, Lord, that those empty promises leave us empty. They leave us empty, and worse yet, they bring about death, and they bring about destruction. And yet you are a God who redeems. And in you we find redemption. We can leave behind those empty promises, submit our life to you, and find true life. And we pray that you will help us do that. In your name we pray.